Welcome to the Disrupt Education Podcast. I'm Peter Hostrosser, the host. Hey, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Do me a favor, hit that subscribe button and leave us some feedback. Really would appreciate that. Head over to disrupteducation.co. It's a great place to read my blog and, and this podcast hosted there. And anywhere else that I'm going to be, will be there and we can connect there as well. Disrupteducation.co. On today's episode, Ariel Nobile is a producer and director, award-winning documentary filmmaker and creator of The Belonging in the USA docuseries. She is an amazing person and founded Legacy Connection Films in 2005 that harnessed the power of filmmaking to help families heal, reflect, and imagine together. She's got over 100 personal documentaries for her clients, and she's branched out and has a six-part public uh, television documentary series called Belonging in Boulder, Unexpected Stories from Your Neighbors. Um, She's received a Hugo Television Award in 2012, and there's just so much about her documentary and, and storytelling. She is practices revolutionary listening and radical empathy. You don't want to miss our conversation coming up right after this. I recently asked Jake, who is a sophomore in high school, why he uses SpikeView to share his learning journey. Um, I think it's really cool that you know SpikeView is really putting that abstract into con- concrete data and knowledge and then displaying that to the outside world. And I think SpikeView is different than anything else out there. Um, like I said before, because it's really taking that, you know, the, that those abstract skill sets and those abstract experiences and putting them into data that, you know, is actually mathematic and scientific and, um, you know, that matches you up with the best programs and, um, you know, best places for you. People, um, you know, who are really trying to make those changes in the world and they're going to be using SpikeView because SpikeView is that app where you can, you know, take, take those experiences and take those passions and put them out there. Um, and share with other people and that's you know that's really powerful and that you know that professional networking piece um, you know to be with other like-minded teenagers that puts you ahead that puts you ahead in a lot of ways and so um, you know I think anyone who's a spike you right now has a leg up in the future and excited to see you know where those spike you alumni head up head to spikeview.com start your portfolio now for free Have you ever thought about creating courses and training online? Without a partner to guide you through that process, you're going to be stressed about why your learners aren't engaged or how to create updated content, missing revenue opportunities, and not even having enough time. I know because I create online courses and I have a solution for you, eLearning Partners. You don't have to be overwhelmed anymore. Become a partner with eLearning Partners to create your courses and training stress-free and achieve the results you want to see. If you are thinking about wanting to create a course or training online and you believe like I believe that no expertise should go unheard, then click the eLearning Partners link in the notes of this podcast and you can start your journey to create your courses and training stress-free. If you want all that and more from the eLearning Partners, hit the link in the podcast notes because there's a free masterclass for you to take. That's right, a free masterclass. Hit that link today. The Disrupt Education vlog can be found on YouTube. To hear it in podcast form, search Disrupt Education on any of the following podcast platforms. Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Spotify, or Stitcher.
Welcome to this episode of Disrupt Education. I'm the host, Peter Hostrasser. I have an amazing guest uh, today, Ariel Nobile. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome, awesome. Uh, an American film director. Uh, I can't even read all the re- awards that you've won, although, you know, I just, you know, I try to make people humble. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, somebody does amazing work in, in film and documentaries. Um, can you can you start us off with a little bit of your uh, backstory? Sure. I mean, that's like it's like that big question, right? And actually, I'm going to answer it with kind of a story, which was that I in college I went to the experimental theater wing at NYU, and I we took a couple of classes called self scripting. And one of my favorite parts of that class was we would sit in a circle, like 20 people. And you would have two minutes to be like, catch us up on how you got to this moment in your life. And it was like, whoa, how do you, you know, how do you tell your whole life story in two minutes? But uh, I'm going to try. <laughs> so, I mean, I was born Evanston, Illinois, went to Baker Demonstration School, um, in, which is part, was part of National Lewis University Teacher College. My mom was a teacher, an art teacher up until I was born. And then she didn't go back to teaching until I was in high school but public school art teacher. So we went, I got to go to this amazing preschool and kindergarten at Baker where I um, had Betty Weeks was my kindergarten teacher. Do you know who she is? Uh, I've heard of the name. Why do I, it's got to remind She's a renowned storyteller. Right, Uh, right. Okay. And so I like, some of my earliest school memories are sitting around a a fake campfire that we would make with those like bricks, you know, those cardboard brick things. Mm And we would tell like Native American ghost stories and like this was kindergarten and it was so about fantasy and storytelling and the magic of nature and just, you know, the mythical just reality of being alive. So I feel like I was so lucky to have that beginning education experience because I did love it was all play, Mm -hmm. play based. Yeah. And then we moved to Wilmette and I went to public school, you know, and. Mackenzie Elementary still love to drive by it and be like, oh, that was the source of so much. <laughs> um, but I was, you know, I would say I was always a, I would say above average student. I mean, I don't think I cared. My parents were very good about not emphasizing grades or performance. Um, it was like I never worried about that. My mom now tells me a story. I didn't know this, but there was this. Um, it was like, I think it was called EEP. It was like a gifted program within the school mm-hmm. that I must have tested just below being able to be in. And this is, my mom is not this kind of parent, but I guess she was mad that I didn't get into it. <laughs> so she like advocated for me to get into it, but then they didn't let me in fully. I was only in it partway. <laughs> so that, it's like, well, what does that mean? You're yeah, sort of gifted. Right. <laughs> and so I, I remember going into this like dark room some of my f- good friends were in it and we did really cool archaeology. It was like Egyptian. We did a whole thing with hieroglyphs and like mm-hmm. clay. And it was like this other room that only a special kids went in, right? But I only got to go there part of the time that the other kids <laughs> yeah. I knew were there. So it was like this weird being in two worlds. I was always really a good writer and reader and math. I'm sure early on I just thought I was bad at it, even though if I look at my story of math, I was never bad at math. I was in advanced math even, but mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of maybe the stereotypical girl thing in public school of right. getting that messaging. Um, and then I went, you know, middle school was hell. 
uh, just <laughs> as far as social and emotional stuff. I can agree. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to New Trier High School, where again, I was sort of in, you know, honors classes eventually. It was, well, so New Trier, I don't know if you're familiar with the level system, mm-hmm. but um, I was in like three and four level. Mm-hmm. And when I was an adult in my early 20s, starting my business, I went back and substitute taught at Nutrier for a year and a half or so. Well, and it was a great job. It was so amazing. I want to write about it someday because it was like seeing this education machine from the other side right. and like what, <laughs> what all goes into it. I made good friends there and I was there actually pretty much every day, all day, because I could sub in dance and music and theater and Spanish. And like I had all these <laughs> multi, they were like, who are you? And if I had been a quote unquote regular teacher, I'd never would have gotten right. to yeah. teach in all those classes or, right. or meet or know the kids even because I would sometimes see the same kids in multiple classes. But the level system from seeing it from the teaching perspective, I was like, wow, there are so many schools within the school. Yeah, yeah. Because the expectations clearly, unfortunately, on those two level and even some of the three level kids were so low. Yeah. It was like, wow, this is really dumbed down. And also they're getting the messaging that they're not that smart or good at anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. that was, right. and then in four level, it was like, you always felt, I mean, I remember some kids who were just like, you could just tell like, well, this is a genius. I'm sitting here debating philosophy with <laughs> like, okay. Right. Um, and you are clearly like the nerdiest person in the world. And I love that, but I can like talk to you about these ideas. So I was kind of, I was a, uh, I was probably infamous at Nutrera as far as I had a biker jacket that I wore <laughs> and I had dark makeup and yep. I smoked and I was just sort of, you know, badass, but really still my sweet, sensitive right. self, just like yeah. putting on the armor so I would be okay <laughs> in a school of 4,000 kids that was going to eat me up. Um, I always did theater from a young age. I started training at the Piven Theater Workshop mm-hmm. in Evanston in fourth grade. And I would say that was probably the best education I had as far as humanity raising and empathy building and feeling of collaboration versus, because I never really bought into the competition stuff. Thank God my parents didn't either, but that was where I really felt I belonged in a lot of ways, even though I also felt I didn't belong there a lot, believe me, (laughs) because it's just my battle with belonging as a person. But I definitely felt more seen there Mm -hmm. like i had more space and there was i could sort of get above or away from the drama of public school socialization stuff and so when i went to new trier and there's this amazing you know gosh world-class theater training there yeah this is kind of a funny story but in sophomore year when we were starting to be allowed to audition for plays they did the play diary of anne frank Mm -hmm. and i auditioned i did not get in but they, there were two Anne Franks, one of whom was this, at the time, friend of mine who was in movies like Apollo 13. She was like a famous mm-hmm. child actor, basically. Well, she wasn't Jewish, and she, I, she got to be Anne Frank. And that made me so mad. It felt like such an injustice that I right. completely boycotted theater at New <laughs> for the rest of my time. I never auditioned for another thing. I just did Piven. Uh-huh. And I was like, you know, but it was really self-sabotaging in a way, too, right. because I was like, well, now I don't have to try. Right. Forget right. It. <laughs> Forget it. I just won't do that. I'm, not, I'm, you know, totally unjust. So, I mean, that's kind of my nutshell mm-hmm. for pre-college. And I always wanted to go to NYU. Yeah. Um, I think it was because of the Cosby show, honestly. Yeah. Because Theo went there and right. I loved him. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm going I'm going to the, I'm going to NYU. Yeah. Of course they have an amazing world 
renowned theater program. So in high school, I actually went to UCLA for a summer too mm-hmm. to do a theater program there because it was sort of between New York or LA, right? Where are you yeah. going to be as an actor? Right. Because I thought I was going to be an actor. So I went to UCLA, really beautiful campus, hated Westwood, hated the sort of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, knew, and I'm glad I had that opportunity because I then knew I didn't want to be in L.A. I used to call it hell Every time I go to L.A., I like it more. I, it's grown on me over right. time. I think like any big city, you have to find your niche. And there's mm-hmm. amazing people and amazing cultures there. But I, New York was like, oh, I just loved it. So I went to New York. I mean, I graduated when I was 17 from high school. Yeah. My birthday's in November. So I was an, a year mm-hmm. younger than all my peers. I went to New York City at 17 to study experimental theater. And actually finished in three and a half years. Hmm. So, because I had AP credit. Yeah, right. So that was good for the pocketbook, right? Because yeah. <laughs> New York's yeah. not inexpensive. <laughs> and that was really, you know, um, that's when I knew that the in terms of like the, especially senior year of high school, that the level of discourse and like the incredible education I'd been given as mm-hmm. far as that opportunity to just really learn about human beings. Like right. I feel like my history classes, my English classes, and like the I took a great AP great books, which was just absolutely life-changing. And my teacher just died um, this past year, oh. Raisa Landor, but she was such an amazing human, just mm-hmm. how she led us in this dialogue process that I think informs how I do my dialogues with audiences right. today, right? Yeah. But going to NYU, no, no, no offense, NYU, but your your academic classes were nothing compared to what I had been through <laughs> at Nutrier. And I was kind of disappointed because I was like, but mm-hmm. but then it also helps you. For me, it helped me see the inequities in our system, right? Right. right. And how and not just and it's and it's obviously it's socioeconomic and racially based for sure. But it's also that level system, right? Mm-hmm. right. That's an inequity, right? Just because you got slanted in some point in your life, maybe it was seventh grade and you took some tests and you maybe weren't paying attention or you didn't feel, you don't take tests well or whatever. And then you're on this track forever Mm -hmm. and you have, and you feel this way about yourself. So I feel it in my sister, for instance, she's four years younger than me. We never were in high school together, but she was on a totally, she's, she went to RISD. She's like visual artist, Mm -hmm. creative that way. And did not do well in any of the public school settings mm-hmm. like I did. And I was the older sister and yeah. I wasn't an overachiever, but I always, I didn't have to try hard. <laughs> I wrote my papers the night before, right? you know, got yeah. A's and B's. Like I once got a D in geometry and that was like, oh my God, <laughs> I felt bad about it. Like my parents didn't care, it was me. I was like, how could I get a D? <laughs> so I was that quintessential, like quote unquote, good student. Yeah. Even though I might've seemed appearance wise, like I, was a badass. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I'm telling you, a lot of people in film and, and acting that I've read on, I, I, I think about Gary Sinise, same thing, smoker, like had the jacket on. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, before he went to Steppenwolf and, and did his thing. So uh, I'll keep my eye out for the smokers and the people who are hanging out in leather jackets. I'm like, you're going to make it. You're going to be awesome. Uh, but I, I love that. Um, and, you know, as you... It's so true. Um, when I was listening to your story, one of the main things were experiences and stories, right? Those that that's 
I'm sure I was good at math. I just checked the box, right? And I don't want to downplay math because there's stories in math as well. But it seems like those those educators that that kind of push story um, all the way back to kindergarten. What a what a wonderful wonderful experience. Um, and I can tell you, the last math teacher I think I had uh-huh. that really was that spoke to me was Mrs. Karakis in seventh grade. She was just, she was four, I don't know what country she was from. Mm-hmm. She was old, old, you know, old, quote unquote, for, she was probably 40, but she seemed really old <laughs> in seventh grade. But she had this like sort of blonde hairdo and she was beautiful. And she just, I don't know, I just, what she, I felt good at math in her class. Mm-hmm. She made me feel like I was, could do it. Maybe it was having a female math teacher. I don't know. I had, I feel like I didn't have great math teachers at New Hampshire, but again, I was in three level and maybe I was right. automatically... It wasn't as good. And I was going to say this, too. I also did social service in high school. Mm-hmm. I was on the board there and did all kinds of you know volunteer work. And that is also where I started to see. Well, now I look at it and I'm like, gosh, I was so in this sort of white savior. Right. 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 But I saw things. I put myself in positions where I was experiencing things that maybe the typical new church student didn't get to. Like I was hugging babies at Cook County Hospital and seeing just like abandoned kids and, right. you know, just having to, being at Cook County Hospital back in the 90s, I don't know if you've been there, but to get, as a volunteer, there was like this whole underground tunnel system mm-hmm. you had to go through because the neighborhood was so bad, right? Like right. they didn't want us kids getting, yeah. walking in the parking lot there. And it was like such an education in that way too, of just seeing a different side of Chicago than mm-hmm. the bubble I was coming from. Yeah, And that was powerful and I think led to me you know, just noticing more. And even Rogers Park, I volunteered as an after-school tutor. And those kids um, actually had to fire my tutee because she stopped showing up. Mm. And there was, like, other kids who didn't have tutors, and, like, it gave her a lot of chances, and then she just she wasn't doing it. So I had to – we decided that I would, like, teach her the lesson of you got to show up. Yeah. But, like, yeah. I also knew that, like – her mom was a drug dealer yeah, and she was taking care of her little brother and she was like 10. You right, know what I mean? I, right. It was like, oh God, but like I needed to help this other kid who was who was showing up. So those kinds of teenage experiences, mm-hmm. I think also just led me to ask some questions just right. about our whole system that I might not have been aware of had I not had those Absolutely. extra experiences. I mean, there's there's levels of, of you know, trauma and, and what people go through and, you know, you're right. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I we all kind of in the Midwest, we go through our thing, but we're very segregated. And um, as hopefully that's changing and we're, we're uh, understanding things, you you tell stories, you tell stories of uh, tell people's stories for them um, of, you know, their journeys. And, and how how is how has that been? Um, what, what is that like? Uh you know, you, you have some great pieces. Um, but man, I got to tell you, uh, you know, watching a few of your pieces, and I know uh, one of uh, the people who were, was uh, in one of your documentaries, um, y- there's a lot of education in there. I'll just be, I'll just leave it there. So kind of unpack that. What, what are these documentaries not only doing for you, but I mean, I'm sure you have uh, people who are saying, hey, you know, Ariel, this is great. Like, I'm learning this. I never saw this lens. Well, okay. So I guess I'll say this. I'm one of those people that since I was a little girl, mm-hmm. first of all, I've been taking care of other people's children because I love children. <laughs> 
And in the process of taking care of other people's children, since I was like nine, mm -hmm. adults have been confiding in me for better or worse. Mm. <laughs> so I've been listening to adult versions of reality from a really young age mm -hmm. and being able to hold the space for that. So I think that just sort of sets the groundwork for who I am. Mm -hmm. and, and then I've been really curious about, well, how do we become ourselves, right? Like how, like we all get, so, I mean, to take it sort of back even further, I was born three weeks late, took three days to have me. And when I was born, I had a blood incompatibility with my mother, hmm. which says a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we have a great relationship now, but it, you know, there was just a lot of fraught things there. So I almost died, right? I had a mm -hmm. full blood exchange when I was born. Mm -hmm. And because I grew up knowing that story about myself, I chose to assign the meaning that I'm here for some reason. Mm that I chose to stay in this body, that there's a purpose to my existence. So that is sort of the premise, like my bottom line belief system, yeah. right? Yeah. So then I translate that outward. Okay, and I look around at people, any single person I would see on the street, meet, pass, be in a you know subway car with, there's a story there. There is no single person walking around today or, or in a wheelchair or whatever, however you get around. Right. <laughs> doesn't have an entire journey that they're on and have been on and whether they've taken the time to reflect on that journey to think through it some people are at questioners some people are not some people sort of coast unconsciously through life and some people are really asking and making the connections and finding meaning right mm -hmm. it's there's there's so many different ways to be a person but because you know, theater especially gave me that place to tell stories and Piven Theater specifically is focused on story theater. Mm -hmm. So it's narration, it's using fairy tales, it's finding the meaning in these sort of myths. And so I feel like I've just expanded that in my films and my documentaries to be like, okay, well, what if like Joseph Campbell, right? If we're all the hero of our own story and, and we're all, <laughs> you know, whether we know it or not, we're on a hero's journey <laughs> in this life. And so what if we frame it that way? What if we talk about it that way? What if we think about it that way? And so, you know, I found people who not necessarily didn't necessarily place themselves at the center of that kind of story to begin with. But I also think there's something about honoring elders and intergenerational dialogue that's crucial right now. And so um, I'm trying to find people who um, to tell and elevate their stories who are elders and who have something great to share that we can then either build our life from depending on where we are or look at the life and say, oh, now I see these pieces of my story and why. Yeah. You know, I'll, for one example, you know, the story of Michael D. McCarty, one of the screenings we had, I mean, he's an amazing man and he's had an incredible journey, but um, what's been amazing is to watch people receive his story. So there was one screening we had at a library in Chicago early on and he was having to be in town from LA and this woman stood up at the end and said, look, I came here because my boyfriend knows Michael and sort of dragged me here. I really didn't want to come. I'm at like one of the lowest points of my whole life and really just felt like, what's the point of life? And I uh, just like came in like with so much heaviness and reluctance and depression. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I now, after watching this film, and I don't feel like it feels like a shadow just lifted. I feel completely different. I feel like I will my I understand my purpose. I am totally going to change. My life has just changed. Mm -hmm. Right. And that to me is what the power of story is. If we can witness each other 
because no one is actually above anyone else. Mm -hmm. And no one has a more, I mean, the way our power structure is set up, we have these ideas that there's this hierarchy. That's actually not true. <laughs> and nobody's journey is more important than anyone else's. But we're told that that's not the case. Right. And so, you know, even in the case of the Lords, who you know, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I was drawn to about Lords when I first met her was we were introduced by a mutual friend, is the way that Lords is a meaning maker. Right. You know, she is so passionate just about the synchronicities of life, right? The fact that her grandparents got married on Pearl Harbor Day. And then years later, that's when they found out they were going to be incarcerated in, you know, in a Japanese incarceration camp. And like, well, what is the meaning of that? Nobody can really say, but it's what you make of it. Right. And that there's just this connection, this connection. And I believe that one of her grandparents passed away on that date, too. Like, it's it's just a date that has significance for her. Yeah. And she's a person who's drawing a line there and saying, ooh, this is a thread of a story mm -hmm. that is important for people to know. And I think we all have important stories to tell. And it's a matter of just basically standing up and saying, I have something to say <laughs> and my story does matter and not diminishing ourselves because that's what I feel like is empowering. Is not, it, you know, somebody else can sure, a teacher can come and say, you're great at this, da, 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 like right. let me empower you. But it does have, there's a point at which it can, it has to rise from within you and Hopefully the films that I make inspire people to find that in themselves or to start, you know, I hope that kids, teenagers, even younger kids, I'd say my movies are probably PG-13, but my daughter's 10 and seen them, um, that they would watch and be like, oh, I want to look for those pivotal moments in my life or, oh, I wonder about my neighbor or my grandmother or like, did they go through that? What was it like for them? And to just start to be to like look a little bit beyond ourselves, but also look inward. It's like the both and. As an educator, I think taking that that concept of really just looking and hearing and listening, humanistic approach first, um, and then because when I think what we're taught in education is, well, I, I know what I was taught: um, get that classroom managed and get them some information. And then have mm -hmm. them regurgitate mm -hmm. it back to mm -hmm. you, right? And this is 20 years ago. Um, man, I don't know what's going on these days, but I hope it's changing. But um, when I did that switch, just like you you said, when you, when you start to listen and actually learn who your students are first, it, it's amazing. It's, it's a life changer. It's a game changer. And I do know that in a previous interview, one of your things that you uh, recommended everybody do is question everything. So I got to come out and say, okay, so we're in this pandemic. Um, you're telling stories by listening. And over here in education, there's a whole group of us saying, we have to get humanistic. We have to teach the student first and then subjects. Um, what's your question? Uh, how do you want to question education? And, and how, would, how would you like to see it improve through this? kind of, you know, attaching those two things. What, what would you like school to look like? That's a well, big question, I mean, but hey. It's, a, it's like a poor, I mean, I, in general, because I mean, when I started my documentary series, Belonging in the USA, Stories yes. from Our Neighbors, I wanted to create a paradigm shift or be a part mm. of a paradigm shift in general, right. like worldwide. And that paradigm shift is really about what I call revolutionary listening and radical empathy. 
And those two things are hand in hand. And I think it's what you're talking about in practicing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like it's, um, it's not, there's no, it's, it's non-hierarchical. It's yeah. not top down. And it's, so I'll give you this. I did not go to film school. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that film school is bad or nobody should go to film school, but I'm saying that I wanted to make films even in high school, I made my first documentary at that tutoring center. Mm-hmm. We had, in great books, we had to make we had to do a project on the meaning of life. That's not that was heavy. a project, <laughs> and I loved it. That was like my favorite thing I ever did. And me and my cla- my classmate Caitlin, we made this documentary about the meaning of life, and we drove around and we would shout it out the car window. What's the meaning of life? And strangers on the street would answer. A lot of people gave that from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that they gave that page number, which now I'm forgetting. And then we asked these kids in the center what the meaning of life was. We got these, it was just an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So I knew I wanted to do more of that, but I never actually considered studying documentary film. (laughs) And I think it's partially because what matters in anything, what I do is story, right? Mm -hmm. Is just being able to, tease out a story from a lot of information because the story is beyond the information. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't follow a path. I, I studied directing then at Second City, right? Mm-hmm. Because I decided, well, it's really f- important to make people laugh. It's really important to me to have a sense of humor. It's really important to not be so heavy. And this was during like the Bush administration when things seemed really, really heavy. I mean, it was post 9-11, like, but I was like, I need to laugh. Like, I want to make right. funny things. So what I'm saying is I take like all these ingredients of the different elements that formed who I am and how I make work. And that is me. Mm-hmm. So what I think I want to see in education and I think I've shared with you, I mean, we're, we've just taken our daughter out of school. Mm-hmm. We're unschooling her, which is self-directed learning. We're in this de-schooling process. And I'm, I'm reading and like, I'm a researcher. So I'm like, I want to learn how to make documentaries. I have a library of books about how to, I asked a film professor I knew, what do I do? He said, don't go to film school. Here's the books to read. Mm-hmm. Here's your curriculum basically. And then shoot as much as you can. And I shot everything for a year in my mm-hmm. life. Like I was just filming all the time. So I think finding mentors, I feel like if we had an edu- I feel like we spent, what I'm learning from my research on education and talking to you even, so much money we're i think in this country we spend the most money maybe of any country on education and we have like really poor outcomes still whatever an outcome is um because like it's like you mean a person like a poor people like what are we making right this is not what is the the, the widget it's a human life like mm-hmm. it's not a widget it's a human so i think if we can start with first of all at the beginning of childhood like the beginning you're going to enter a system you look at three and four year old i was just with a friend's little four-year-old oh to just so precious and so happy and so curious and so like education to me should just continue that love of the world, the love of right. each other, the love of nature, the love, the fascination, rather than trying to fit inside of this container or box, expand what that is or make a box for each person. <laughs> like, okay, right. you're into that. That's your box. And oh, you want to change boxes? We'll make the box bigger. Like, and maybe have a mentor. I mean, I'm, I've went recently to a Sudbury Valley school in Florida. These, mm-hmm. these are democratic schools. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think there's one model that's going to work for everything, first right. of all. So and I think the public education is, I mean, I believe in it. I believe in it as sort of a right, but I think what we what it has to look like is going to be different for each person. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. can we create something that's agile enough to be that? 
where even you're saying to that little person, ask a four-year-old, five-year-old, not just what do you want to be when you grow up, but what, who are you? What did you come here for? I mean, I think there are other cultures on this planet that do a better job of that, that mm -hmm. we could learn from, that are really clear about purpose and meaning and community building and interconnectedness and all these things that as a planet we need to really realign with mm -hmm. as a country, but in, as a planet. And um, asking those little people not, oh, do you want to be a fireman, a lawyer, a doctor? How about, <laughs> what do you, how, how are you going to make the world better? What are you here to, what are you here to give? Because if somebody is, I mean, my daughter can, I, I'm a, I make music, I write songs and play guitar and sing. My daughter's into that too. And she can already play the piano and remember the, like, I played the piano for years. I was never like good, as good as she is. She's just really good at it, mm -hmm. naturally. I want her to continue to love it. I don't want her to be coerced into practicing or, you know, because I felt like I had, my mom was really strict about piano. I started when I was three or four and I had to, I, and she might disagree with this. Sorry, mom. But she's, I think I had, I remember that I had to practice piano every morning before I ate breakfast. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling hungry, you know, yeah. four yeah. and like, oh God, I have to play like row, row, row your boat and then I can eat. And it felt, you know, punitive. So it made me mm -hmm. resist it. I feel like education should be about love and delight and wonder and the human experience and emotion and empathy building and um, emotional intelligence. Like we, it's like a buzzword, mm -hmm. but it's not like, again, it's not a widget. It's like the most fundamental way to make the world better is if yeah. we just, especially, I mean, I'm thinking, especially for men and boys mm -hmm. who are so uh, socialized and programmed not to live the fullness of their human emotions. Right. Right. I mean, women too, but I think men really have that against them as a point against them of just not being able to express very much the spectrum of emotions. Mm -hmm. So unless you happen to go to acting school, <laughs> then it's a free for all. <laughs> but like most people don't. Um, and I think actually using the arts too, not like you have to be an artist, like you're a painter, fine, you get to paint, but just we're express we're creative beings like yeah. that's what makes us human so making that a priority a fundamental thing and you said something about subjects or teaching the person not the subject i'm like i really feel like do away with subjects like yeah. everything is everything mm -hmm. so you can so we're selling our house now right mm -hmm. and our yeah. daughter is like a part of this whole she's learning real life practical step by step we had her make we made a list at the beginning here's how you here's the steps to Get your house on the market. Here's the steps to look for another thing. Like all the steps. What is a mortgage? What is the percentages? All this stuff. It's math. Yeah. It's practice. I don't know. It's like I can't even categorize it, but it is a <laughs> lot of different subjects in one. Yes. And yeah. they're life skills that I don't feel like I was taught by any of my schooling. Right. So that's a really long answer. But no, I mean, it's what I what I'm hearing is is really, you know, and it is your mantra. Right, you gotta say it. If you exist, you belong. Yes, I just love that because if you if you exist in school, you, that's what we're trying to do. I was on a conversation this morning with um, a group of educators around the world, and it was amazing because every one of us said, "Let's build a safe place for failure." 
okay, you know, let, okay, so then we're, you know, it's, it's very complicated and, and, you know, another but nobody, thing, but, yeah. but nobody likes to fail, right? Like as an artist or a creator, I yeah. hate, like, yes, it stops you. And I, and I was just, I always tell my daughter that we we're just talking about it today, cause we're about to really make this leap to move across the country and I'm scared. And so is she. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, but what is courage? Like, what is bravery? It is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. You're right. As a creative person there, you know, I have been really lucky. Mm-hmm. But I've also, gosh, I felt like for all the maybe outward, like you said, I have all these awards. I don't even care. That's like right. so yeah. inconsequential to me because I'm like, oh, but, you know, have I touched these people? Have yeah. this like what my measures are are for myself mm-hmm. and failure, like. I don't even know what that means. Like, I think that's also this weird concept that we have. Because what is failure? Because what is success? And like success, that's one of the questions I ask everyone I interview, basically, mm-hmm. especially because I work, you know, the business where I make these legacy films for high powered, very wealthy families. And mm-hmm. that's a question I always ask. And it's just so fascinating because you would be surprised how unsuccessful some billionaires might feel. Right. Right. Or right how so successful somebody who lives in a trailer might feel, mm-hmm. right? It's not a external. So that if you exist, you belong. I'm like, I really believe that. But then I also understand it's in, it has to be in the context of community, though. Right. Like we need each other to create that sense of belonging because as humans, we want we want connection. We want people to see us and hear us and acknowledge that we are here and and love us. I mean, love. And that's the other thing. I feel like in Argentina, my husband's from Argentina and I have friends, a lot of friends. I have some teacher friends there. In Argentina, everybody kisses each other on the cheek, right? Mm-hmm. You kiss your doctor on the cheek, right? It's like mm-hmm. just a more physical, warm right. culture, which I know there must be really struggling in, in right. this pandemic. Yeah, that's the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, that's why the country is totally shut down too, I think, because they're yeah. trying to keep mitigate that. But mm-hmm. But like just that simple cultural difference, right? Like a kid who goes to school. Now I'm not saying that every kid loves their teacher, but there's love in the room. Right. Like love is a part of the context of learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think that honestly, probably for me, the times that I've learned the most is when I felt loved by my teachers, and mm-hmm. the times that I felt most insecure and most unable to be myself was when I was feeling judged or criticized or, you know, like I wasn't worthy enough and mm-hmm. but I wasn't meeting some standards. And it wasn't even about performance. It was just like, do you see and love me? And that's what every single person wants. And now, I mean, with within a, uh, you know, we're, we're doing this on on in classrooms and such, and we're trying to figure out different ways that we can actually meet the students where they are and um, keeping upbeat. Um, uh, I would fair to say uh, the teachers also that uh, you really just gelled with. Were they really happy? Did they really like what they did? Oh, I'm sure. It makes yeah. a huge difference. I mean, why does somebody become a teacher or an educator? And what right. even is that? Yeah, right. Right? Like, I, and that's what I say. Question everything. Like, I don't exactly. like to take anything at face value. I yeah. really do. And I can, I also have this very annoying talent of being able to see like multiple sides of every issue. Yeah. Like I could argue myself out of every into and out of everything. I'm also a lawyer's daughter. Like that comes from that too. But like just being able, I think that's part of 
empathy, right? It's like yeah. this perspective building different points of view. And there's not about, it's not about right or wrong. It's also not about success or failure. Like, yes, allowing failure. And I think in the context of the system we have now, that has to become just a concept that's embraced. But there is no such thing as any creative process without the feeling. It doesn't even have to mean failure. I guess it's that feeling that things are just really going to shit. Am I allowed to? I already swear. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, that things are just falling apart. Right. That you're going to, it's like that feeling that you're on the top of the roller coaster, but you're bracing yourself and you don't want to fall down that, that I'm not a roller coaster person. So, like, that's a good <laughs> analogy for me. But, like, just that, oh my gosh, holy shit, I can't do this. Right. I don't want to do it. It's like labor. When you're yeah. giving birth to a child, there's that point at which they say, you know, you think you're like, I can't do this. I'm done. And that's like the transition point. And you're mm -hmm. like, okay, you're, you're pushing. Same with anything creative as humans. I think we always are going to resist our growth mm -hmm. on some level. Right. It's never going to be a straight line. You know, children, you have kids, like they learn something. Let's say they are really learning to read. And mm -hmm. well, they might start wetting their bed. Like it's right. two steps for, you know, forward, back. It's not a straight line. And so I feel like the education model we have right now is like A, B, C, D. And that's just not how life is. It's not how humans are. It's not, it's, it's inhumane. It's kind right. of cruel because if you don't fit that mold and you don't, you can't make yourself do the thing in a linear fashion, you're going to always question who you are and think something's wrong with you. Right. And there's labels in there. There's, uh, you know, uh, I heard it somewhere. I was on a clubhouse chat or somewhere and, um, I did not say this, somebody way more brilliant than I am in that capacity of education, but we, we've always had a credential industry. We've never really had an education industry, and that's that mm. linear piece. And that, that got my mind like spinning. And it's it's very similar to, to how you're um, talking about, you know, being vulnerable, being brave, being somebody who's going to be out there and learn, and that's okay where we're going to you know, go all over the place. Um, I like to consider failure learning and then success. You know, they both, if success goes up, learning goes down and then it, it switches. And that came from uh, another gentleman this morning uh, on a, on the chat and it was just eye opening. So, so Joyce Piven, Joyce and Bern Piven would always talk mm -hmm. about the off balance moment. Yeah. And that's that, like, it's like this moment of possibility, like, but that's what you're actually seeking right. as a creative being. You're like, Ooh, I don't want to be predicting everything. And I, you know, I used to teach improv too at Second City and Piven. And I always say this to people still, okay, unless you have some magical information that I, I don't have, and you know, Peter, exactly how <laughs> this conversation is going to go. You have a script and I don't have it. Like everything is improv. We are right. always improvising our lives. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And so like how it's that quote I have up here from Einstein. There are only two ways to live your life. One is though nothing is a miracle. The other is so everything is a miracle. Right. It's just that simple. And that's the only kind of black and white thinking I like to get into. I'm like, okay, well, I choose to feel like I have a purpose on life. You may think that you have no purpose and fine. Who's like you said, who's happier? Right. <laughs> and it's not all about happiness either. I don't think that life is always going to be about happiness, but what moves you towards your joy? Right. What makes you come alive? And I feel like what I want to see in my daughter, what I want to see in myself and the people I'm around are like, is aliveness is, yeah passion for being alive because it is so finite and that's the other thing i think that we need to do better at mm -hmm. as a society but definitely in education mm -hmm. is awareness of mortality yeah. talking about death 
talking about, and I think the pandemic is providing an amazing opportunity for that. And yeah. I, I hope that educators in classrooms are using it. I don't know mm -hmm. if it's too taboo. It is really taboo in our culture to talk about death. Right. But if little kids had that awareness of, okay, so you have this many, you have this potential many years on this planet. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do with them? You could do anything. Here's some examples of how people have lived their lives. What are you going to do? And that kid may say, I'm going to create a blabagoduba. And like, nobody knows what that is. They're like, oh, what is that? Instead of being like, that doesn't exist. Yeah. You don't know what you're talking about. Go make a pie. You know, <laughs> we're making pies today. <laughs> Let that kid create that mythical thing. And it may just change the planet for the better. I mean, all the inventors, all the sort of magic makers, I mean, all the technology we have, all the arts we have, it came from people being willing to look stupid, first of all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and to just do something that everyone might have thought. I mean, when I started my documentary series and I laugh at myself now, I really thought that I was going to make 10 films in one year. <laughs> that was my goal. It was insane. <laughs> I had no idea what, I mean, I was like, well, I just do it. Yeah. I'll just, I have the equipment. I, I can, I, I'll find the stories here. Now I'm on my third one and it's been four years, but still I'm, I'm not, that doesn't count as a failure to me because right. I persevered through it and I've learned so much. And I mm -hmm. think that's the other thing. It's not about goals, like goal setting and saying, I'm going to do this thing. And then it's going to look like this. And I'm going to do this next thing. It's like, what do you do? What's the process of life? Like the right. process of creating, the process of learning. That's where the gold is, not like the like the information regurgitation or the exactly retention. And that's what real education, I feel like, is and should be. I have an app called uh, We Croak, and it reminds me five times a day I'm going to die. It's from, uh, uh, I think it's Burmese uh, culture, and it's amazing. Like it really did in a, uh, another friend of mine. So I love that idea of let's not like let's let's not be afraid of that. Let's let's embrace that. Let's let's go with it. It's a little easier with high school. I teach secondary, <laughs> primary. Hey, my wife does well, that. So <laughs> well, but maybe, I mean, you might still be afraid. I mean, I feel like yeah. my daughter from a young age was when she learned when she really we had some death young when she was two. My father in law died, and then when she was four, our cousin died young. Mm -hmm. It was, and we didn't shelter her from it completely. I mean, mm -hmm. we didn't do this funeral thing, but we did go and were present with the grieving, let's say, right. in Argentina. And so I know she got, she went through a period where she was like, are you going to die before me? Like, you know, just, yeah. oh gosh, let the, because I think what really scares us about death is the pain surrounding losing people that we love, which we, if we're lucky, are going to get to experience, right? Like yeah. it's not going to be us first. So I feel like, it is scary and acknowledging that. I think what we don't know how to do well still, and what, again, I hope my films help fill in a little bit is like, there's this human experience and it involves all of these emotions and it involves all of this stuff, suffering and struggle and challenge. And it's not always a straight line. And it's not like you're just gonna get to a point and be like, everything's so wonderful. Right. Cause sometimes it's gonna suck again. You know, like mm -hmm. Michael, I just had him on my podcast he is going through cancer right now. He, you know, he went through so much in his life. You're like, okay, he must be done. He's 70. No, his siblings both died during the pandemic and he got a cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So he's continuing to live human reality and be faced with challenges. But again, it's how he shows up to those. And every single day, that's going to be different. I, right. Did you ever read The Four Agreements? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I love my favorite one, I guess, because maybe it's the easiest one. <laughs> in a way is always do your best and your best is going to be different based on 
How much sleep did you get? Did you have enough water? You know, did you get in a fight with somebody? Did somebody cut you off in traffic? Like those are all, they impact us. We impact each other. But you can also be someone like Michael is this. I think Lords is this. Mm -hmm. Definitely Alicia and Antonio in my second film are like this. They're like lights in the world. They bring people up. They um, feel most alive, I think, when they're inspiring other people, when they're touching other people's lives, when they're connecting. And so I guess that's true for me, too. I think it's probably true for you. And so and maybe for really inspired and inspiring teachers, educators, it's about that zest and passion for living and and love of humans because i don't think you can even i'm not i don't believe that children are inferior to adults or that you know they don't know as much i've learned a ton from three-year-olds like <laughs> whoa two and three-year-olds can be some of the wisest people you ever really talked to absolutely and and it goes and it continues you know kids are are very wise and we mm-hmm. could do better to listen to them and, and notice what they pay attention to what they observe and see because it's often the adults that are mucking things up from our own <laughs> programming, right? There's a reason I do a podcast, and that's because of my previous students kind of teaching me, you know, all the different ways that, that we can communicate and connect. It's 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 awesome. Um, wanted to round out and uh, ask you what's what's coming next. What's uh, you know what's Ariel doing next, and and how can people uh, find your work? Well, my website is belongingintheusa.com, which you can find. I have three websites, but that's the one I'll send people to for today. And you can find trailers for all three films of this documentary series on there. And then I'm also launching a podcast. I don't know when this will be seen, heard by people, but it'll be in spring. It'll be the Belonging in the USA podcast. You can also find that on the website. You can you know, follow it and listen to it. You're going to be a guest on it. Yes. Um, I'm excited. I'm We're excited. having a lot of, because basically during the pandemic, I'd had a, couple, a few virtual Mm-hmm. I've had some virtual screenings. If you sign up for the mailing list, you can get on that list to find out about them. But I'm someone who really feeds off of an of an audience and just the connection of humans in a room. So I'm kind of putting that on the back burner till we can gather in person again, I mm-hmm. hope one day eventually. <laughs> and the podcast is a way for me to continue to have uplifting, inspiring conversations that help me learn right. and hopefully whoever listens will also you know have a better day because they did. Well, I can't thank you enough. Ariel Nobile, thank you so much for hanging out with us on Disrupt Education and just being a storyteller, an empath, a radical empath, uh, and somebody who really is just, uh, you do, your purpose is just right out. And I, I appreciate you sharing your entire story today. Thank you so much, Peter. It was fun. And thank you all listeners for hanging out with us on Disrupt Education. Make sure you subscribe. Hit, uh, give us some feedback. Five stars always help. We'll see you next time.